Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour or so, Charles Hecker will take us through the newspapers and then... My mum was 45 when I was born, my dad 50. Yes, I had many fewer years with them than my sisters had, but each one was treasured. Our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, with his weekly column. Plus, we'll be visiting the German pavilion at the Venice Biennale. This is like a recursive thinking more than a reflexive thinking, that you see everything around you, around us, as material which kind of changes the future. And Emily Sheffield, the editor of the London Evening Standard, tells us all about a new festival and competition run by her paper in conjunction with Netflix. All of that coming up on Monocle on Saturday. Do stay with us. First, here are the headlines. Israel and Hamas both claimed victory on Friday after their forces ended 11 days of fighting, but humanitarian officials warned that the damage to Gaza would take years to rebuild. Palestinian officials put the reconstruction costs at tens of millions of dollars, while economists said the fighting could curb Israel's economic recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. A Taiwanese official accused China of spreading fake news about the COVID-19 situation on the island, saying this was why the government was publicising and refuting instances of false information that have been circulating online. Taiwan has repeatedly warned that China, which claims the democratically governed island as its own, is trying to use cognitive warfare to try and undermine trust in the government and its response to the pandemic. U.S. President Joe Biden and South Korean President Moon Jae-in injected fresh urgency into attempts to engage North Korea in dialogue over its nuclear weapons, with Biden saying he would meet its leader Kim Jong-un under the right conditions. Biden and Moon said the complete denuclearization of the Korean peninsula is their goal, with Biden stressing he was under no illusions about the difficulty of getting North Korea to give up its nuclear arsenals after his predecessors failed. And our weekend uh, edition bulletin this week. We start in Venice, which is bouncing back today as its long-awaited Biennale gets underway. And for those eagerly anticipating tonight's Eurovision Song Contest, we speak to Salvador Subral, the competition's highest ever scorer. Elsewhere, we find out what's making headlines in rural Philippines, check out some joyful Japanese pop, and investigate the sartorial sway of streaming TV. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, it's time now to have a browse through this morning's newspapers, and I'm joined today by Charles Hecker, who's a senior partner at Control Risks. Good morning to you, Charles. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, Charles, we've been managing to tempt a few people back into studio, but you couldn't be drawn. Why is that? You know, I'm, I'm on my way in as soon as I get my vaccine. Um, it's it, this week. So next time we're speaking, we're speaking in person. Um, and I just can't wait to get back into the studio and, and do this like a normal person face to face. A normal person. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and traveling like a normal person, too. I mean, that's a, there's a huge big read in the uh, in the FT today about tourism and how that's coming back. But also, really, it, it has quite, quite a focus on responsible tourism. And I must just say, you're being very, very responsible with your whole not going anywhere till I've had my second vax. I'm I'm sort of I've turned into a bit of a vaccine extremist and you're absolutely right I'm 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 keeping to myself until I get that second vaccine but there's plenty of pent up demand when it comes to travel and that that's part of what um this article talk, talks to us about um it's a long read 
in the FT, but we've made it to the weekend, which is something that I think increasingly deserves a trophy these days. And so I think we should enjoy this long read. And the headline on this piece in the FT is why we should travel, why we travel and why we shouldn't stop. Um, and the author, Tom Robbins, who's the FT's travel editor, um, the author takes us along with him on his trip to Portugal, where it seems that the entire country has decamped to. And, and by the way, tempts us by saying that passengers who are traveling now are drinking record amounts of champagne in the business class lounge. So, you know, enough to make us a little bit jealous there about, <laughs> about getting on an airplane. Anyway, what Tom Robbins tells us is that in 1848, there was an essay on tourism that noted that the railroad and the steamboat, which were relatively new in 1848, quote, have afflicted our generation with one desperate evil. They have covered Europe with tourists. So you can see that people were moaning about tourism all the way back in 1848. And Tom Robbins tells us that tourists these days are referred to as herds and flocks and droves, which are terms used to refer to groups of really stupid animals. Um, and there are now queues on Mount Everest. Um, but here's what is most interesting about the piece and, and really its conclusion, and that is that there's such a thing as good tourism and bad tourism. And, and what Tom Robbins asks us to do is to think about tourism the way we think these days about food production and that we're meant to avoid the sort of mass-produced, polluting, industrialized kind of tourism in favor of the more careful, locally sourced and locally produced tourism, just as we're doing now when we go shopping and we think about food. It's an absolutely fascinating piece that I really recommend. Absolutely. And, you know, it reflects something that's uh, coming up in a new book. There's this wonderful book called um, Hotel Europa uh, by Ilse Leonard Pfeiffer. And it's uh, at the moment, I believe it's only in Dutch and in German. I think he's from the Netherlands. And he kind of pulls apart tourism, really talks about Europe being this theme park, but also about how nobody who's a tourist wants to be seen as a tourist. Everybody wants to be seen as a traveller. Um, and, and this piece kind of goes into that and talks about responsible tourism and and, and, and how, how really we should be taking travelling more seriously and not just kind of, you know, going for a, a week in the sun with, with the herd, as you say. Well, that's right. So, so the author points out that even tourists hate tourists, um, number one. And, and number two, what he does suggest is that rather than taking lots and lots of quick trips, you know, the weekend getaways, the city breaks, um, what we might want to do is perhaps take fewer trips that are a little bit longer in duration. So sort of a little bit less of a carbon footprint and more of an engagement with where we go. Yeah. Now, uh, Charles, I spent a lovely evening last night with my very, very best friend uh, making her dating profile. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we were on Bumble and OkCupid uh, trying to make her sound like she's the best catch in the world, which she is, incidentally. But how do you get that across in very few words? And one of the things that both sites kept uh, asking if she wanted to put on there was her vaccination status. And that's something that possibly slightly embarrassingly, the White House is also interested in. <laughs> yeah, well, back to the subject of pent-up demand. So um, anyway, you're right. So the White House, we go to the New York Times with a headline that says, White House says dating apps can help vaccinated and frisky find love. And so 
here we are from sort of the podium of, of the press room in the White House talking about hookup apps, which is a little <laughs> bit cringe-tastic. Um, but, you know, this is a statement of the Times. Um, anyway, and so what's, what the New York Times is telling us is that dating apps are now noting whether their users are vaccinated or unvaccinated. And they're producing these sort of electronic stickers that you can put on your profile to say that you've been vaxxed. Um, what the New York Times tells us that we may not have known is that some of this is actually happening happening at the White House's urging because the U.S. very badly wants everyone to get vaccinated. And so what they're doing is they're trying to reach us where we live, and that is on our phones. Uh, and so the White House tells us that people on one site um, are 14 times more likely to make a match if they say they've been vaccinated, then if not. And so I guess this is all part of that nudge theory of telling people that, look, if you behave in a certain way, something good will happen. And so now this is on the world of our mobile phones and our dating apps. Uh, sex for vaccinations. I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, and in fact, linking those two first two stories together, uh, it goes on to talk about how um, uh, as vaccine, uh, as vaccination rates rise, so do the number of personal grooming appointments because everybody's sort of planning for their summer holidays and that the new phrase, vaxxed and waxed, is the unofficial motto of the summer. Oh, oh. <laughs> You know, it's 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 a it's a cruel world out there, Georgina. Is all I can say. And and you know, all you want to do is is meet someone, have a nice drink, and 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 you know, see where it goes. But the amount of prep that this takes these days, um, you know, good luck to your friend. Um, and and I anticipate a full report on her future successes. <laughs> well, it is a cruel world, as you say, and it's been particularly cruel to Donald Trump right now. Although some would say he absolutely deserves it. Uh, he is sliding towards online irrelevance, which is really the worst worst thing in the world for him, for a narcissist who just wants to uh, have himself front and centre of everything. Or at least this is what the Washington Post tells us. That's right. This is a headline that perhaps the Washington Post has been waiting its whole life to write. And, and as you said, it says Trump is sliding towards online irrelevance. His new blog isn't helping. Um, and so this is a story of, of the, the basic collapse and failure of the president's social media strategy, because we know already that he's been kicked off all of the most popular um, websites, including Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And, you know, he was promised to unveil this, this massively sort of game-transforming social media website that basically turned out to be a blog. And what the Washington Post tells us is that more people are visiting petfinder.com, <laughs> which is a pet adoption website, um, than are visiting uh, former President Trump's new website. And, and I guess what's interesting about this as an aside, frankly, is that this article basically points to how lazy we've all become. And that is that people don't go to websites anymore. They wait around to have things pushed at them. Um, and frankly, that's what's undermined Twitter in that even though his most enthusiastic supporters, because he remains incredibly influential inside the Republican Party, but he, even his most enthusiastic supporters are too lazy to actually go to a website in the absence of the constant stream of push notifications coming out of Facebook and Twitter. Mm. And the piece also goes on to say that, in fact, the website's really, really bad. Uh, it's basically little more than a blog. Uh, and it has uh, various officials who are behind it going, yeah, but this is not the new thing. The new thing's still coming. This is just like a thing, not the big thing. It is they're already backpedaling, they're already backsliding, they're already making excuses. The blog is 
unattractive. It's not very user friendly. It's not very modern looking. It's 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 called from the desk of the president. Um, but you know what? It's just really it just it just doesn't do anything. And 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 it's been a significant failure for a president who prided himself um, on social media and who really existed only electronically and, and, and in the ether. And it's all just, the air has just come right out of it. Yeah, and validation through viewing figures and, and uh, social media likes. Well, viewing figures are not going to be a problem for Eurovision. Of course, that's tonight. Uh, and here at Monocle, we're unbelievably excited. As you know, it's like a big thing in Monocle <laughs> world. Um, the Guardian has a quiz, uh, which is quite fun. That's right. So um, I will also be. Uh, it's, a, it's a big thing in the Hecker household um, <laughs> here in Shoreditch. And um, I will be watching with a group of friends online. Um, and we've done our menu planning and we've done our drinks menu and, and we're ready to go. Um, and so, Georgina, can I quiz you with the Eurovision quiz that is in The Guardian in today's issue? Uh, can we test you on your Eurovision knowledge, Georgina? Well, maybe. <laughs> I'm going to give you a pretty easy one. Okay. Okay. There's there, so so we're going to go to question number eight on the Guardian's Eurovision quiz on their website, and the question is Waterloo by ABBA, and I'm assuming that you've heard of ABBA, is arguably Eurovision's <laughs> most famous winning song. Georgina, was it 1971, 72, 73, or 74? 74. But, I know this one off by heart. ABBA <laughs> is my favorite group, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and my my little tenuous connection to this is um, years ago I, I was performing at the Brighton Pavilion and I was given the dressing room in which Agneta uh, had dressed for that winning performance in 1974. And um, I, I can tell you that I sort of hardly paid attention to what I was doing on stage. I just wanted to be in the dressing room where Agneta had been. <laughs> wow, brush with fame. My, my very, very tenuous brush with fame. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question now. Oh, no. Hang on. Let me find a good hard one. Here we go. Okay. Which of these acclaimed international stars has completed, has competed in Eurovision? Was it Madonna, Celine Dion, Vanessa Paradis or Kate Bush? Okay. First of all, can I take issue with the phrase acclaimed international stars? But anyway, (laughs) um, and I know this one also off the top of my head, and that is it is Celine Dion in for the win. Really? Okay. Yes. <laughs> I didn't Wait. know that. I didn't know oh. that. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Celine Dion not only performed in Eurovision, but she took the prize. Um, what I did learn from The Guardian was that she did it in 1988. Um, Madonna has performed at Eurovision, but she was not a competitor. She was a specially invited guest, and that was in 2019. And what did Celine Dion sing? <sighs> Oh, okay. Uh, Georgina, I'm going to have to get back to you on that because it's not here in the um, <laughs> it's not here in the Guardian, and and my geekery only goes up to a certain point. Um, but you know what? I'm going to be researching that and. Um, that is for discussion a, later when I come into the studio. That's such a pity because I was going to ask you to sing out, sing us out with, with oh. Celine Dion's winning entry. Could it have been <laughs> near far? <laughs> <laughs> We're doing all of our listeners a great favor by, by depriving them of the great privilege of hearing me try to sing anything, let alone something by Celine Dion. 
Charles Hecker, your heart will go on. Thank you very much for joining us here on Monocle 24. Let's round up the things we learned this week. Here's Monocle's Andrew Muller. We learned this week that the odds on former US President Benito Cartman ending up in the dock have shortened enticingly. The Attorney General of New York State confirmed that her investigations into the manifold alleged shenanigans of the Trump Organization were now more of a criminal than civil nature. So we learned that plans for a Trump restoration in 2024 may be on hold due to the possibility of the 45th president becoming the first person in history to have had their diet improved by prison gruel. Or... Did we? Before we learned, thanks to the diligence of Monocle 24's electoral loopholes desk chief, Chris Chermak, that there is no theoretical impediment to a candidate seeking and winning the presidency, and indeed leading the free world from the Huskow. Indeed, we learned that American history already contains an example of someone taking a crack at pursuing this unlikely path to power. Here is Chris on Wednesday's briefing. There was a case, actually, of Eugene Debs, a socialist political activist who ran multiple times for office in the U.S., including from prison in 1920 for President of the United States, garnering 3.4% of the vote. We learned, however, that Donald Trump himself continues to deny everything, and we also learned that there really is something to be said for the 280-character limit once imposed upon his burblings by Twitter. By way of defending himself, Trump plastered a scantily punctuated 910-word paragraph on his new It's 2005 and Dad's Discovered MySpace-style blog at donaldjtrump.com forward slash desk. Here is a portion of that exculpatory Jacques Hughes from the desk of Donald Trump, as read, as usual, with absolutely all due solemnity by Monocle 24's desk, desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. This is something that happens in failed third world countries, not the United States. If you can run for prosecutor's office pledging to take out your enemies and be elected to that job by partisan voters who wish to enact political retribution, then we're no longer a free constitutional democracy. Likewise, the district attorney's office has been going after me for years based on a lying, discredited low life who was not listened to or given credibility by other prosecutorial offices. Here in the UK, meanwhile. I got 99 problems, but a b- ain't one. Hit me! We learned of a frankly irresistible synergy of news story and musical accompaniment, i.e., of another kind of 99 problems. 
do you see what we've done there? Oh, you clever man. You're so clever. Clever, clever. Very smart. Brought about when the popular ice cream variation known as the 99 was menaced by a shortage as sudden as it was brutal of the mini flake chocolate bar, insertion of which into your cone turns a mere ice cream into the treat known as a 99 for reasons we neither know nor can be bothered to find out. We learned that the flake famine currently besetting the UK was caused neither by COVID-19 nor Brexit, but by a simple underestimation of the bewilderingly widespread desire of the British people to stand outside in the cold shower they describe as spring and eat ice cream. Regrettably, we have not managed to learn which news outlet was the first to report this and are therefore unable to congratulate them on getting the scoop. <laughs> what. Ever. And... We learned that at least one of Earth's jurisdictions has no incompetent politicians. Well, sort of. In Australia's Northern Territory, the Speaker of the NT's Legislative Assembly, Ngari Akit, ruled amid a spirited debate about the territory's finances that it would no longer be permissible for members of the Parliament to describe each other as incompetent. Honourable Members, I'm going to add incompetence or incompetent to the list of do not use words in this Parliament. I do find it offensive, and I'm making that ruling. We learned that incompetent and variations thereon will be banished from the parliamentary discourse of the Northern Territory, along with such already forbidden badinage as, and we quote, buggerlugs, mongrel, and any word ending in head. We did learn that the member for Araluan, Robin Lamley, had one constructive suggestion for a replacement. Completely useless, is that okay? A ruling is anxiously awaited, for we have learned from this brouhaha that a great Australian tradition is now threatened, that of parliamentarians breezily addressing each other in a manner usually regarded elsewhere as indication that the bar stools are about to start flying. Playing us out this week by way of reminder of how very much is at stake here is Australia's 24th Prime Minister, Paul Keating. Poor old Costello, he's all tipping no ice cream. Order! Order! Give him a Valium. Give him a Valium. Just Howard being Howard, isn't it, you know? The little desiccated coconut's under pressure and he's attacking anything he can get his hands on. I mean, you know, I mean, he's going, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, he's going troppo. He's going troppo. He's more to be pitied than despised. He's simply going troppo. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Now it's time to hear from our Editor-in-Chief, Andrew Tuck, with his weekend column. One. There are many odd things about rural England, but driving around the picturesque Cotswolds last weekend, I was struck by how many houses and pubs have plastic plants outside their front doors. 
in particular these horrible topiary balls that swing in the wind while suspended from porches. Type Buxus balls into a search engine and you'll see what I mean. It may sound like I'm directing you to a worrisome medical page, but I promise that you'll be perfectly safe. It's hard to work out their appeal, especially when you're surrounded by real thrusting spring greenery. I see on one site that a particular benefit is that you can wash your Buxus balls in a bucket if they get dirty. Again, who knew that that was a concern? Two, and plastic window frames everywhere. Supposedly also easier to keep pristine. So why do they all look so filthy? Three, the weather seems to be in cahoots with the UK's medical authorities and has us trapped in a weather pattern that dims any delight in leaving your home. Hail, rain, crazy gusts of wind no doubt dislodged Buxus balls rolling down country lanes. But on Monday, England allowed restaurants to reopen for indoor dining and it's been a very welcome step back to normality and one which many people have decided to put on their sou'westers to head out and experience. I had dinner in Soho and what was so nice was just hearing that much-missed backing track of people clinking glasses, gossip being shared, laughter. Four... Last Saturday, on our Cotswolds excursion, we went to Hidcote Manor to visit the gardens created in the first half of the 20th century by the American major Lawrence Johnston. They were also the first gardens to be taken on by the National Trust when Lawrence signed them over in the 1940s. The steely skies meant that there were few visitors and it was sublime walking between the various rooms demarcated by high hedges, babbling streams, topiary and pools. I have since read lots from various gardening geniuses harumphing about changes to the gardens and how to correctly interpret their significance. They should just be grateful that the locals haven't been allowed to introduce a selection of bucket-washable shrubs. But the other takeaway is how a wealthy person can create something that ends up being for the common good, that continues to give pleasure for years after their death. Hard to imagine that's an idea that even figures in the minds of today's effortlessly rich. Naomi Campbell has a new baby. She's 50. Too old? Unfair on her children who will never have a youthful mother? It's all been picked over in the features pages of the newspapers. My mum was 45 when I was born, my dad 50. They already had four children by then and my elder sister was in her 20s. I think it's fair to say that another child was not quite what my parents had planned. And yes, growing up, they were different to some of my friends' very young parents. But I loved it. They had time, they knew themselves and what they were doing, and my dad did not want me to play football, but perhaps hang out in the garden. It's why I'm such a snob about plastic topiary. Yes, I had many fewer years with them than my sisters had, but each one was treasured. I'm very happy that contraception was clearly very unreliable back then. Six, the return to karma times means that we now have guests back in the radio studios and that people are happy to meet you for interviews again. This week, for an upcoming urbanist show, we walked the low line just south of the Thames. It's not a linear park, so forget the high line, more an attempt to create a path alongside the rail track and see empty arches turned into homes for fledging businesses, theatres, a trapeze school and a green delivery depot. But trees and planting will be used as a tool to create public realm, make the disparate feel whole, and real trees too. Seven, and finally, don't forget to come and see our verdant home at Midori House. 
we have a ticketed event to mark the launch of the new Monocle Book of Homes. Nolan, its editor, will be there. Me too. So come and join us. It will be a ball. Not a topiary ball, a real ball. Many thanks to Andrew Tuck. Now, the Evening Standard is London's most iconic news brand and the UK's largest quality daily. Recognised as setting the agenda in politics and business, as well as being first with major news and sports stories, the brand reaches a total of 18 million cross-platform readers a month. The paper's teamed up with Netflix, the world's leading streaming entertainment service, with 208 million paid memberships in over 190 countries. Together, the two mighty organisations have launched the inaugural Stories Festival and Competition to inspire a new generation of storytellers. Well, joining me down the line is Emily Sheffield, who's the editor of The Evening Standard. Welcome to you, Emily. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, Emily, what form will the festival take? I mean, I'm, I'm hugely excited about this. It's a new creative uh, collaboration with Netflix, and we want to bring the best writing to life in a series of performances, readings, workshops, conversations, uh, parties. I, I think we all need a few parties and a children's element too and it's going to be we, we moved it uh, from june for obvious reasons to september so it's over three days in london in september from the 24th to the 26th at the picture house central with further party venues to be announced and i think i just think it'd be so nice for us to do something physical as well after this year of digital absolutely and what sort of people will be taking part well we've got a huge mix the thing I'm really excited about this is we didn't want to do a traditional books festival. I think London, like many cities in, in Britain, actually, but particularly probably London, is that we're, I think, one of the greatest creative hubs in the world. And the written word, the spoken word, storytelling, it's huge here. We export some of the biggest talents around the world. And, and Netflix has been part of that, actually. And I wanted to open it to everybody of all ages to tell stories. I mean... I share a love of music with my 16-year-old son and some of the young artists rapping here in London, if you listen to their lyrics, they're telling amazing stories in often incredibly moving ways. And I wanted to include that in a storytelling festival and so did Netflix. Uh, We've also got some of the greatest theatre writers here, film writers here, poets here, And I really wanted to appeal to a broad spectrum of society where I think sometimes book festivals can feel a bit off-putting to people and it might feel like, oh, I've got to have a university degree, I've got to want to write a book, where actually, as you and I know, we communicate through so many different mediums and stories is how we talk and have conversations every day. Mm. And Netflix were really excited to do this with her and today we can announce I mean we're still working on the lineup but today we can announce Jed Mercurio is going to be part of our lineup Will Young Daisy Buchanan Nisha Dolan as well as a special showcase from rapper Stormzy's Murky Books we'll also be hearing from Alice Osman who's a brilliant young adult writer whose um, heartstopper graphic novels are being made into a new huge show by Netflix and on top of that we're launching a competition which is really important to us We're looking for powerful new voices and original stories from unpublished writers. And we don't mind if they write, sing, rap or film their entries. 
I mean, that's yeah. a wonderful way to, to reach people who might yeah. think that they can't write. Yeah. And graphic novels, we, we don't mind. We just If you can tell a story, honestly, we don't mind what medium it comes in. I understand that the competition's in two parts. So you've got one for younger writers and, and one for adults. Yeah. I think from some of the younger ones, we, we might find that there's kind of amazing storytelling going on on social media. So I'm genuinely really excited. And I really would like to emphasise that it doesn't matter what the medium is. It's the story that's going to matter. Mm. And, and what are the prizes for that? Will they get published in your paper? They get workshop sessions with other leading screenwriters or editors, publication of winning stories on our website and VIP access to the festival. And the winning pieces will be performed as part of the Stories Festivals by well-known writers and performers. Excellent. And to sign up, you go to www.stories.standard.co.uk. But people need to do that soon because entries close, I think, at the end of June. Yes. Emily, what's the aim? What do you hope that this will achieve? I think it should open up storytelling. As I said, I, I hope it will make people feel that storytelling has to be trapped in certain categories. I think, if anything, what the pandemic has done is fast forward a, a digital form of communication that was already on the rise. And I think that, you know, we've just run a photography competition, which was open to all ages, telling their stories of lockdown. And they could do it by video or photography. And it's I've just seen some of the entries. They're extraordinary and they really tell, when you put them all together, they really tell a story of a city in lockdown. Mm. And I just think that we've lived through the most extraordinary year that we will ever, any of us, live through. And I hope you often see creativity out of adversity. So A, I think the timing is wonderful and amazing and really important. And I think we will see a surge of creativity in the next few years. And the other thing, I, I do genuinely think that storytelling is the heart of what it is to be a human. And I just want to encourage anyone from any background, any walk of life, in any medium to develop that. Because I think we're going to see such exciting new developments in communication. We're going to keep seeing it. I mean, if you think the influence of Twitter, Instagram, video, this has all been quite recent. So I'm excited that we're doing something as broad as this. Many thanks to you, Emily. That's Emily Sheffield there, the editor of The uh, Evening Standard. And do keep an eye on the paper and the website for more details as the event approaches in September. And if you have a story, get writing. Opening today after a 905-day absence from the city, Venice's architecture Biennale will see hundreds of architects and designers respond to the question, how will we live together? Among the exhibitions in the Arsenal and the Giardini is 2038, The New Serenity, showing in the German National Pavilion. In responding to the brief, the curators made a series of films dreaming of a utopian future in 2038 where architecture has been used to positively shape society. To find out how this might be achieved and learn more about the exhibition, Monocle's Nick Moniz spoke to its curators, Olaf Grachert and Christopher Roth. So when you enter the pavilion, you have basically four thematical rooms. The experts are kind of like, so we curated them in these spaces. They are all kind of like connected. So that's part of the reality already today that you cannot really separate between the topics. No, you cannot say one 
topic one expert starts here, ends here. Of course, they are all like interconnected. We also chose cases from architecture, like uh, topics like circular economy, how this could change how we build and how we think about resources. We talked a lot to people from, um, you could say, the digital sphere, who are talking about new tools to negotiate. So this idea of who negotiates in which format with which tool what the majority of society can agree on. So kind of like trying to find like a middle point where you can take position and agree on. So there are these thematical rooms that are kind of like interconnected through these cases. And are these, I guess, things that you want to see championed in the next 18 years or so? Is that the idea? Sure. I mean, these are all contributions to make the world better. And they are sometimes they are very small now, but they will be scaled up in the early 30s. So looking back, these were the key people who kind of organized it. And these were the platforms where these things started. And can you explain one of them and how you see it evolving? Olaf just mentioned the circular economy. There's an architect, Thomas Rau, and an economist, uh, Sabine Oberhuber. They work in Amsterdam. And they explain how you have materials where you have like a material maduster, like a caduster, and you kind of take care that these materials, even if they are trash, they have a number and they are kind of in catalogs. So they never go away or they're never really recycled, but you reuse them. Mm. And the, these are totally new kind of thoughts. This is like a recursive thinking more than a reflexive thinking that you see everything around you around us as material which kind of changes the future and not me thinking about the future or you thinking about the future or the past and thus constructing the future so it's a new way of kind of let's say more thinking in systems and they are all like Francesca Bria, Evgeny Morozov Windsurf even and all these people they are thinking about how can we take the technology today to use it for a better world and not to use it only to sell things to people and that's what this film is sort of unpacking so we see Absolutely. you know you mentioned one of the characters Billy we see the world she's living in and that's what we're discussing now has actually been implemented and she's living in that world I'm curious as well why film why did you decide to present this as films is this to connect with an audience beyond architects who might only be interested in, in models and, and drawings what's the logic behind that I mean on one hand it's exactly what you're saying to get out of the bubble of architecture to get more people interested to get people interested in the net that they have these little compressed films where you compress an argument and then they can go deeper and read and look at drawings and all these things. But for instance, when we teach at the ETH, these students only make films because we found out that to have this kind of other thinking and not convince people with statistics or all these things which are pretty boring, it's nicer that you have a story or to, that, that you go somewhere. And you see also in the crisis or in the world, in so many crises, you don't need this hero anymore, but you need a rethinking to kind of overcome the crisis. And this is something you, you learn with storytelling more than you learn by reading statistics in a way. 
And I guess directing to your life, I'm curious as well, Christopher, you mentioned overcoming the crisis. Like there is a positivity to this pavilion and your exhibition this year. Why is it important to be positive and to show that, you know, these ideas like more collective ownership when it comes to property, why was it important to show that? What Christopher said, like this idea of storytelling, of course we want to tell a story that is positive as an invitation to everyone to think, I want to live in this world, what can I do now to actually create this world? No? So what the experts already did in telling their stories and telling how it can happen or how it happened, like looking back, it's also an invitation to people in the present to say, okay, let's make 2038 happen. And I think that's also what Christopher mentioned, there's always like a story to these facts and statistics. So it's um, what we do when we teach is also to make people realize, okay, you have like an amazing design idea, you thought it through, it's great, you presented it, but what happens if the people who you imagine to live in there, if they have a personal crisis and all by a sudden they decide to get divorced and move away and sell the house and all by a sudden your great idea and your great concept might crumble. You also have to think the crisis with it. So I think that's why we tell this positive story to make people realize, okay, through storytelling you can actually really design also architecture. Olaf Graffert and Christopher Roth there speaking to Monocle's Nick Monis. And uh, no, I'm not envious a bit of Nick being in Venice with no crowds and tourists uh, at all. No, no, you just go ahead and have a lovely time, Nick. Uh, that's all we have time for on today's programme. Thanks to our studio engineer, Steph Chungu. Uh, and uh, Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>